It's something we all do or need to do for good health. Sleep. Sleep is critical for health. Sleep deprivation can be associated with cardiovascular disease, affect metabolism and diabetes. So it's far more than just a simple quality of life issue. It's critical for health. On today's show, learn about disorders that can affect healthy sleep from a sleep expert. We'll also learn about sleep studies that can help overcome sleep disorders. In a sleep study, what we're doing is we're seeing what the structure of sleep looks like and how things that maybe we can measure externally might be affecting sleep quality. And we'll focus our CTSI on a local medical student designing dream bedrooms for kids fighting cancer. We make sure they have everything that they would want in their room. They spend a lot of time in there recovering and we want to make sure that they have fun things to stay busy with when they're not feeling well. Discover sleep disorders and designing dreams inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Freighter Hospital, Versity Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions in advancing biomedical research and finding new drugs, treatments, therapeutics, and interventions that are better, faster, and more economical than ever. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. According to the American Sleep Association, over 40 million Americans suffer from chronic sleep disorders each year, and an additional 20 million have occasional problems getting sleep. Dr. B. Tucker Woodson is director of the Fredericton Medical College of Wisconsin Sleep Disorders Program and a nationally and internationally recognized expert in obstructive sleep apnea. We had the pleasure of speaking with him to learn more about sleep disorders that affect the lives of millions of people across our nation and in our own community. Dr. Woodson says we can't underestimate the importance of sleep in maintaining good overall health. Sleep is one of the three main legs of good health. Good diet, exercise, and sleep. And he emphasizes that getting sufficient sleep is more than simply a quality of life issue. Sleep is critical for health. We now know that sleep deprivation can be associated with cardiovascular disease, affect metabolism and diabetes, there are many restorative other health processes. So it's far more than just a simple quality of life issue. It's critical for health. In fact, lack of sleep can itself be a serious health risk. Lack of sleep has been associated with a lot of medical morbidity or disease. We know that sleep deprivation is associated with significant increase in risk in calcifications of the coronary arteries. We see increased risk of heart attacks and strokes. But while many of us value a good night's sleep, Others can't have one due to different sleep disorders that Dr. Woodson and the Fredericton Medical College of Wisconsin Sleep Disorders Program treat. We asked him to share some, including insomnia. Symptoms of poor quality of sleep, oftentimes difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep or just not getting enough sleep that people suffer from. It's very common. Narcolepsy. Narcolepsy is a disorder of severe sleepiness. It's a primary neurologic disorder 
And it's pretty uncommon. It's about as common as multiple sclerosis. Which, according to the National Institutes of Health, is approximately one in every 1,000 people. Then, there's parasomnia disorders. Things that go bump in the night. That can sometimes be people waking up with night terrors, people that have sleep walking and sleep talking. They're really kind of a combination of wake phenomenon associated with sleep phenomenon going on at the same time, but they're relatively uncommon. Sleep movement disorders. Restless legs, which is relatively common and can be quite bothersome to those who suffer from it. What about the one many of us are all too familiar with? Snoring. Snoring is very much related to the disorder we call sleep apnea. Both of these result from having too small an upper airway. And you work harder to breathe, and that causes the tissue of the throat to then vibrate or make noise, and that's the noise of snoring. We'll focus more on sleep apnea in a moment. But first, we asked Dr. Woodson what are common causes of sleep disorders. Sleep disorders have a wide variety of causes. They're neurologic causes, such as with narcolepsy, that's an intrinsic brain disorder. Whereas snoring is a very structural anatomic cause that then interacts with physiology or mechanisms during sleep. What are some common symptoms that might indicate a sleep disorder? People being excessively tired during the day. Other symptoms can be difficulty in initiating or actually falling asleep, but the most common symptom that we see is actually snoring because snoring is kind of the hallmark of sleep apnea, and sleep apnea is one of the most common disorders that we see. Since it's so common, let's take a closer look at it. What exactly is sleep apnea? Sleep apnea is a process in which the upper airway collapses during sleep. It collapses because the upper airway is too small. So when you go to sleep and muscles relax and the airway gets more narrow, the person's body responds by working harder to breathe. That creates the noise of snoring. But also then that extra work makes the quality of sleep poor and people may be excessively tired. And then it can affect oxygen levels and have impacts on health. And in severe cases, sleep apnea can have big effects on the heart and cardiovascular system, metabolism, and set up a whole inflammatory cascade and result in a variety of conditions, but we particularly worry about the cardiovascular ones. How serious those additional health risks can be will vary because everyone is different. We're just now really getting a hold of phenotypes. Individual characteristics each make us a little bit different. So someone with mild sleep apnea may not have a lot of major medical risk. Whereas somebody who has another pattern of disease where they have more severe sleep apnea, that person may warrant very aggressive treatment to reduce that risk. We talk about it frequently on this show, personalized medicine. And Dr. Woodson says it's also the future of sleep medicine. One of the challenges in medicine is doing a better type of phenotyping patients. So we can actually tailor the treatment for each person based on their needs and not treat everybody the same in the future. Speaking of treatment, how is sleep apnea commonly treated today? Most of the treatments are geared towards making the airway larger or helping with airflow. The most common therapy we use is a device called nasal CPAP. It blows air into the airway and just physically holds it open. I've heard of CPAP, and you probably have too. But what does CPAP stand for? Continuous Positive Airway Pressure. It's a positive pressure device. It's like applying pressure to a balloon. When you apply more pressure to a balloon, the balloon gets bigger. And so that's how CPAP works. It's extraordinarily simple in theory. In practice, it gets a little bit more complicated because you need the machine and other things that then interact with the patient. And one of the challenges is to make a less intrusive, more acceptable treatment that people can use on a more regular basis. How effective is CPAP in treating sleep apnea? Well, in the sleep lab, CPAP is very effective. 
The challenge with CPAP is when someone takes it home, they need to use it. So if it's sitting in a closet, it's not very effective. There's a number of people out there, when they do use it, it causes significant issues that make it less than satisfying. And that's the challenge. Can you either correct those issues or basically then look at alternative treatments? What are alternative treatments for sleep apnea? Well, non-invasively, we use a lot of oral devices. It just holds the jaw in a more forward and open position. And then we look at the wide-ranging group of procedures so that the patients that are morbidly overweight, maybe what they need is a weight reduction, surgical procedure to correct that. And then most recently, we have a procedure in which we actually place a pacemaker to the muscles of the upper airway to hold it open. And for the right patients, can really help them a lot. Next, we asked Dr. Woodson who's most at risk for being affected by sleep apnea. For sleep apnea, the group that's most at risk is the middle-aged overweight male. But paradoxically, some of the more severe medical consequences occur in women that actually have sleep apnea. That can be a big public health issue. So identifying sleep disorders in women is very important and probably somewhat underreported. He adds that our genetics can come into play as well. Structural contributions, many of those are genetic, the shape of our face, the nature of our soft tissues, but other things can play a role as well. In adults, it's usually more the different aspects of how our face is built, along with obesity. As people gain weight, there's then more soft tissue to kind of fill this container that is our skeletal structure of our face. And Dr. Woodson says research is ongoing to better understand these structural causes of sleep apnea. We're trying to understand the nature and patterns of collapse studying the mechanisms of how the airway collapses during sleep, and particularly how, as you breathe in, the pattern of airflow can actually reflect the underlying anatomy. And that would allow us to very non-invasively identify some of these structural causes of sleep apnea. If you're a parent, you may be wondering, do children suffer from sleep apnea and other sleep disorders? Children can suffer from a wide variety of sleep disorders, not just sleep apnea. Night terrors is commonly seen in children. In children as they get older, especially in adolescents, we see a lot more insomnia and other sleep problems. He says technology has increasing negative impact, especially on kids, due to substituting screen time for sleep time. With the advent of the internet and all the other devices that we have in the world, that's been a real detriment to good quality sleep. And on the pediatric side of the world, a major problem is our issues with inadequate sleep. And so I think limiting devices prior to bedtime and certainly after bedtime is critical. But don't be too quick to judge your kids, mom and dad, because there's both nature and nurture at play here. Their biological timing is a little bit different than adults. And so they normally want to go to bed a little bit later and get up a little bit later. So that's not just a behavioral factor. There's actually a biological reason for it. And so this can be a real challenge because their sleep timing is just delayed a little bit. And so they want to run a little bit later than the rest of the world. So how can we know if we might have a sleep disorder? Dr. Woodson says in addition to the classic symptoms of excessive daytime sleepiness or snoring. We're seeing more and more people that come in, for example, the atrial fibrillation or hypertension or diabetes being treated without all the classic symptoms. And if you have a risk factor such as high blood pressure that's not being well controlled with normal medication, then sleep testing is needed. We'll learn more about sleep studies in a moment. But first, Dr. Woodson says there's ways we can improve our quality of sleep. Good sleep patterns, a regular sleep time. If you're not sleeping, don't stay in bed. It doesn't help. When it comes to sleep apnea, anything that helps with breathing. So if you have allergies, treat the allergies. Elevating the head up a little bit and breathing a little bit better, 
Weight loss is critical, reducing alcohol, and certainly not smoking or doing other unfavorable health activities is good. In the end, Dr. Woodson says we have to properly value sleep because we need our sleep. Sleep tends to be sacrificed, but sleep really is one of the key aspects of good health. Many of us were unaware of when we are sleep deprived. And so you need a little bit of insight and be aware of what some of the symptoms are and then you can intervene and act on it. Now that we have insight on sleep disorders, let's discover how they're diagnosed through sleep studies. Here's Kayla Pierce. Brian, if you're not getting good restful sleep, you might have a sleep disorder, but how is this determined? Dr. Rose Franco is an associate professor, Department of Medicine, Division of Pulmonary Medicine at Fredericton Medical College of Wisconsin, who has lectured nationally and internationally on sleep apnea and other sleep disorders. Today, she shares her expert insight on sleep studies that help determine sleep disorders. First, when a patient goes into a lab for a sleep study, what exactly do sleep experts look at? In a sleep study, what we're doing is we're seeing what the structure of sleep looks like and how things that maybe we can measure externally might be affecting sleep quality. In studying a patient's sleep, what's being measured and how do they measure it? So there's brainwave measurement, there's respiratory measurement using effort belts and an airflow sensor and a pulse ox, and then there's EKG leads so we can see what's going on with the heart rhythm, and there's a couple of leads on the legs to monitor for movement. There's also a video component so that the tech is seeing what position you're in, if you're doing anything funny in your sleep, and then data that's coming in is quality checked in the control room while the sleep tech is monitoring the patient. And that monitoring lets doctors learn a lot about the patient's sleep structure. We can see what the sleep structure looks like, whether or not there's things causing problems with the sleep structure, like sleep apnea, or frequent movements, or some unusual things, like once in a while we'll be testing someone to see if they have a source for why they're having unusual behaviors triggered by a seizure, by kicking of their legs, or by sleep apnea. But Dr. Franco says it's important to understand that a sleep study doesn't tell doctors everything. What we can't tell from a sleep study is we can't explain usually why somebody doesn't sleep well. So it's usually the last thing we think about doing when we're dealing with someone who's not sleeping well or insomnia. So we use it more as a tool to look primarily for sleep apnea and to a lesser degree for other causes for why people aren't sleeping well. Are all sleep studies conducted in a sleep lab? Well, yes and no. Dr. Franco explains that there are in-home sleep tests but they're not as complete as a full in-lab study. The home study that is typically done does not involve measuring sleep. So you can call it a sleep study, but I tell my patients actually what we're doing is we're fudging that you're sleeping. But when you put the sensors on and you lay down and you turn the button on and then you get up in the morning and you turn the button off, we assume the time that the unit was running was the time you were asleep. So you can have false positives and false negatives. Still, the in-home test does have a good and useful purpose. That type of home study is designed only to diagnose sleep apnea. It has very good prediction when it's a high likelihood that you have sleep apnea. So an easier test to do because it's in your home and it can answer the main question that most people have when they're coming to a sleep doctor, which is, do I have sleep apnea? She shares factors that determine if a patient is better suited for first taking an in-home sleep test. If you go by the science behind the test, which is very good at ruling in sleep apnea when there's a high index of suspicion, the home study would be the test to do when somebody has a good story, they don't have heart failure, they don't have advanced lung disease, and they don't have history of seizures. Then the home study is the way to go because you're answering the question with a simple study and then you can get access to treatment quickly. 
But even after completing an in-home sleep test, a patient could require additional testing. The home study should not be the end of the story when you have somebody who you're not really sure if this could be sleep apnea, but the home study is normal because the home study is not really studying sleep and it hasn't answered all the questions. It's not a rule-out kind of test, it's a rule-in kind of test. As far as other factors that could lead someone into an in-lab sleep study over an in-home test. If you have somebody who has heart failure, advanced lung disease, history of seizures, then the data may be falsely abnormal because of some other activity going on during sleep that can't be picked up with the sensors that are just looking at breathing. So for those cases, an in-lab study is better. Next, we asked Dr. Franco to walk us through the experience of participating in an in-lab sleep study. Typically, in-lab sleep studies are done in either a hospital-based lab or in a clinic-based lab, set up to be quiet and comfortable, but also provides the technology to be able to do the proper data acquisition so that you can see what's going on with the sleep. When deemed necessary, a sleep study is ordered. And it can be your internist or your primary care physician, or it could be a sleep doctor, orders the test, it gets authorized by the insurance, and then you're told show up at this certain time and date at this facility. At our lab, it's between 7 and 8 p.m. that we're asking people to come. And then they stay the night. Once you you arrive to the lab, you'll be connected to various sensors. They get the wires on the scalp so they can monitor the brain waves, get the belts on, the airflow sensor, and all the other sensors, and then tuck them into bed. Usually we'll let patients watch TV for a little bit, but after that it slides out. And while the patient sleeps in the lab. We're looking at the effect primarily of whether there is a breathing problem that's creating sleep destruction. And if we find that they have abnormal sleep related to their breathing problem, then we have them try CPAP, continuous positive airway pressure. That information is compiled and sent to the physician who then can either order the machine for the patient or can ask the patient to then see a sleep specialist for further information. So the end game is getting rid of the snoring, getting rid of the obstructive apneas. Does the idea of someone watching while you sleep make it difficult for patients to relax? Sounds kind of clinical. About every 30 patients or so I have someone who didn't get very much sleep. For those people, a very mild sleep aid might help them get through the test, but you have to be careful that you're really doing the test for the purpose of answering a question and not just doing it because you can't sleep. But for somebody where it's straightforward and you say this guy can't sleep because they are having a breathing problem, then they should probably have a light sleep aid to take. Having said that, the vast majority of people don't need a sleep aid because they're tired. What about participating in an in-home sleep test? How does that work? The in-home study is ordered usually by the doctor who has the question is the sleep apnea. And then it goes through a sleep lab. The sleep lab handles the order. Here we actually have them come into the sleep lab to make sure they know how to put the device on. She describes the monitor device that's used for an in-home sleep test. It's battery powered, self-contained, and has a data chip in it so it's not uploading to the cloud at all. And it's a belt that goes around the chest for effort, an airflow sensor under the nose, and a pulse ox to measure oxygen level. And then there's a microphone to capture whether or not somebody's snoring. So you get four channels of data. And while it's not as thorough as a full in-lab sleep study, the in-home sleep test is accurate for detecting sleep apnea. It's the same information that's collected in a full sleep study in the lab, minus the sleep structure and the heart rate with EKG and the limb leads. So head-to-head comparison of the data when you have the right patient population, meaning you have a high index of suspicion, it's just as accurate to do a home study as it is an in-lab study. After participating in a sleep study, what happens next? 
Dr. Franco gives us a scenario. So you do the test, the doctor who orders it gets the report summarizing whether or not there's a problem that developed. So it's really on the shoulders of the ordering physician to put the information from the report together with what the patient shared with them and decide if the problem has been answered with the test and what to do with it. Let's say the study indicates sleep apnea and the ordering physician agrees. Then what happens? In those cases, we're often making a recommendation of, yes, there's sleep apnea. If the patient is symptomatic, a trial of CPAP, and then the physician can then choose to go forward with placing the order for the equipment, which is then sent to the patient, and then the patient follows up with the doctor to see if it's helped their sleep. Are there clinical trials for sleep disorders? There's different trials going on across the country, everything from testing new medications to studies looking at devices. I know that Dr. Woodson here had participated in a multi-center trial looking at a device for people who couldn't tolerate CPAP. I know here at Freighter and the Medical College, we're using sleep as part of an adjunct assessment in some of the other cardiovascular studies. So there's lots of ways that you can look at sleep and how it affects diseases. And Dr. Franco tells us where you can find out what trials are available. Websites like the American Sleep Association, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, or sleephealth.com. Those kind of organizations will let people know about some of the clinical trials that are going on. We'll post links on the CTSI website along with the podcast of this show. Finally, Brian, Dr. Franco says if you're concerned you might have a sleep disorder, whether you feel excessively sleepy or if something is keeping you up, speak up. If you recognize that you are not getting quality sleep or that you're sleepier than you ought to be, bring it up with your doctor. Recognizing that by opening the door, by talking about it with your physician, you may be able to then proceed to having testing if that's appropriate to further evaluate why you're not sleeping well. Up next, our CTSI on the community focuses on a young woman who's fulfilling her dream of becoming a pediatric oncologist, while at the same time fulfilling the dreams of kids battling pediatric cancer. Meet Lauren Kerwick, a young woman in our community pursuing her professional ambitions. I'm originally from Beaverdam, Wisconsin. After high school, I decided to go to the University of Minnesota. Graduated in 2015 with a major in psychology and a minor in biology. After finishing her undergraduate work, I decided to do something a little different and step outside of my comfort zone. So. I found a unique experience with AmeriCorps. It's kind of like the Peace Corps, but in the United States, and it's a one-year commitment. Today, Lauren's at the Medical College of Wisconsin. I'm a second-year medical student, getting ready to start rotations in a few months. What are her professional medical aspirations? I have always been interested in pediatric oncology. On the other hand, I've also been interested in surgery and more of the hands-on aspect of medicine, too, so rotations will play a big role in helping figure that out. The stress of medical school is considerable, but Lauren has an outlet for that. I have always been interested in art. One of my biggest hobbies is drawing, and when I'm stressed or overwhelmed or need a break, drawing has been my outlet. In fact, Lauren's interest in both art and medicine developed at a very early age. When I was a little girl, I was about seven years old, I loved to read too, and there was this book called Angels Watching Over Me. It was about a little girl with cancer, and that's when I realized that I wanted to be in the medical field, and so I told everybody from that day 
on that I wanted to be a pediatric oncologist. And while she hasn't fulfilled that dream yet, she has found a way to positively impact the lives of kids with cancer through something she started in college. All of freshman year, I looked around for volunteer opportunities. I wanted a hands-on experience with patients, but a lot of the volunteer opportunities weren't as hands-on as I had in mind, so I decided that I would start something. A timely visit from her parents helped her identify what that something is. My parents were visiting one weekend and my mom is a designer and together we came up with the idea to redesign bedrooms for kids with cancer and I instantly said designing dreams. The name came to her just that quickly and together with her mom and some friends Lauren set out to make designing dreams a reality. went back to my friends apartments that night and we talked about it and I had four of my best friends at college, Teal, Gracia, Becca and Erin, decided to be on the board with me and we started from there. Lauren shares Designing Dreams humble grassroots beginnings. We started as a small student group. We had meetings every Monday and we fundraised for an entire year before we were able to do the rooms. After that year, we did our first room for a little girl named Jessie. I can't imagine a more perfect start to our organization. And after that, we decided this wasn't something that we wanted to give up when we graduated and decided to apply for our 501c3 nonprofit status. That first bedroom design set into motion a referral network and strong word of mouth about designing dreams. We started with Jessie's room. Then she excitedly went back to her psychologist that all the pediatric oncology patients have. And she told her all about her new room and her psychologist said that if we ever needed candidates, children between the ages of four and 14 currently undergoing treatment, she would help us find some. Once a child is selected, how does the Designing Dreams team proceed on a project? Lauren walks us through the process. We try to meet with them as soon as possible, talk with them about what are your favorite things, what are your favorite colors, what is your favorite thing to do in your room. And then the planning process ranges from a month to two months. The big thing is the furniture. We often have our furniture custom made to fit the room, but then once we're all set, we take about a week to finish the room. So we start one day with the painting, the furniture takes a day or two to get installed and all the final details the last couple of days before reveal day. Let's be clear, these are elaborate bedroom redesigns. After all, they're creating a dream. When we do rooms, we completely flip the entire room. So everything down to new hangers so they all match and organization and new games and new electronics and comforter, furniture, everything. Because for these kids battling cancer, their bedrooms are places of recovery and spaces for escape. We make sure they have everything that you could imagine that they would want to play with or do in their room. We know that they spend a lot of time in there recovering and we want to make sure that they have fun things to stay busy with when they're not feeling well. And because every child is unique, so is each bedroom project Designing Dreams takes on. We have done a nautical-themed room. We've done a Transformers room, superhero rooms, our favorite, a lot of teen girl rooms. And we have one coming up for a seven-year-old little girl who loves rainbows and unicorns and glitter. <laughs> so it's a wide, wide range of themes kids pick out.
Also unique is each child's reaction to seeing their Designing Dreams bedroom for the first time. It's one of the best experiences to watch a child open the door to the room for the first time. So Jessie, when she walked in, she just covered her face and started to cry and she said this feels like a dream. Creating a dream bedroom comes at a considerable cost. But Designing Dreams does it at no cost to the child's family. We do a lot of fundraising to ensure that the family doesn't pay anything. We don't want them to have to worry about that. But each room on average costs about $6,000. And as if being a second year medical student and president of a not-for-profit company isn't enough, Lauren also recently donated her time and artistic talent in illustrating a children's book. It's called My Dog Named Hope. It's about a little girl with cancer and her dog who really helps get her through that experience. Lauren is a bit of an anomaly, the heart of an artist and the mind of a doctor, designing dreams for kids with cancer. It is a hard balance. I would say that my personality is a little bit more emotionally reserved. I do have a sensitive side at the same time, but I also think as a physician, it's important to be able to take some of the emotion out of it and also stay mentally healthy. That's all the time we have for this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Our sincere thanks to today's guests, Dr. B. Tucker Woodson, Dr. Rose Franco, and Lauren Kerwick. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show, and I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again next time. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month, so make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, along with Caleb Pierce, I'm Brian Bellmer, wishing you restful days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to this program online and on demand, please visit the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Bellmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir. <laughs>